Welcome once again. My name is Dion. Glad to be here with you today as we begin this new series, The Human Race. Now, uh, why The Human Race? Because I think for a lot of us, that's exactly what life has become. It's become a race, an exhausting, frenzied, nonstop competition to prove who is the, the fastest, the smartest, the most powerful, the most beautiful, ultimately the most worthy. Uh, you know, for example, this week, as we said, we, we started off uh, watching the Olympics, and for the next two weeks, we are going to be barraged with, with stories and stats of, of people who can do amazing things, the stories of human potential that just blow our minds. Uh, you know, for instance, I, I can't wait to see how this young woman performs Simone Biles. You guys know about her, 19 years old, four foot eight, about 110 pounds. And for the last three years, she has dominated the field of women's gymnastics. World champion three years in a row. No one stands a chance against her in the world. It's going to be really interesting to see how she performs because, man, she, she is impressive as an athlete. And then, uh, you know, you've got, you've got other athletes that you're going to see that will just blow your mind. You've got Michael Phelps returning again to the Olympics. And, uh, man, just, just incredible stuff. But, but I have a question for you. As much as I like the Olympics, I just wonder, is anyone else in the room, do you occasionally feel, those of you online too, uh, do you occasionally feel a little, do you occasionally get a little tired of being impressed all the time? Anybody? I mean, I mean it's great to see the amazing things people can do, right? And, and man, it, it's, it can be inspiring. But does it, does it make you just, just kind of a little worn out sometimes with life? You're just like, wow. I mean, that's inspiring, but that's a lot of pressure that I feel back on me. See, I think more and more that's what life is becoming for us. It's, it's this competition to see, can you stand out? Can you be the best? Can you get someone's attention? Can you be a member of the elite? And, and as a result, there's some of us in this room, you're like 25 years old and you're 25 and you hit a crisis, a life crisis because you're 25 years old and you haven't done anything amazing yet. It only gets worse when you're 39, let me tell you, Okay. See, for a lot of us, that's what life has become. It's become this race, this intense competition. Uh, but in this series, we're going to change our perspective on what life actually is supposed to be. Initially, I, I actually wanted to call this series something else. I wanted to call it a new scorecard. Um, and that was my, I advocated for that title. I fought for that title. I got overruled on that title, which as the leader, I thought that wasn't going to happen anymore. But it still does. It still does. So uh, the creative team overruled me. Uh, the reason I wanted to call us, uh, call it that, a new scorecard, is because I think most of us go through life and, and we've kind of got this scorecard in mind that uh, it's got all these categories on it where we keep track to know whether or not we're, we're winning or losing in life, whether we're doing well or, or whether we're not. And on that card, there are things like our performance and our excellence and our achievement and our success. And I think a lot of the things that are on our scorecard are things that you could put put on a scorecard for a precision machine, not, not a human being. And while all those things are great, and I'm an advocate of those things, the reason I wanted to call this a new scorecard is because I think there are other things that we also have to look at when we evaluate ourselves, when we try to figure out if we're worthy, if we're living life well. And, and so I thought, man, if we can just give you another scorecard, a new scorecard to think about your life, that would be really, really helpful. But I got overruled, and now it's called uh, the human race. Regardless of what the title is for this series... Here's what I want to say. If you are someone who finds yourself becoming disillusioned by how high the bar is set in life today to feel like your life matters, this series is for you. 
we're going to look at five different things that, that really have the capacity to give us a more meaningful life if we let God use them. There are five things that can make us more truly human. Things that maybe you won't see talked about on the Olympics, maybe you will, but, um, but things that I think are important for all of us. And we're going to start off with probably the most difficult of all five. Today we're going to start off talking about failure. Failure. Now in full disclosure, I am a complete failure at failure. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense to you. Maybe some of you get what I mean by that. Um, not, not that I don't fail or that I'm too perfect to fail. Trust me, I've failed plenty of times before. In fact, as, as I was getting ready for this message, you know, getting ready for a week on failure, you think a lot about your failures in life. And I thought back to one that was a little more lighthearted. I thought back to the time where, um, where Jocelyn and I were engaged. This is us a lot of years ago when we were engaged. And uh, we're dressed in our uniforms because we both worked, when we were engaged, we both worked at Olive Garden. Jocelyn started there first, and uh, she was an all-star server, and she got me a job at Olive Garden, so I started work there. Now, I'd never worked as a server before, but I'd worked a lot of jobs. I was, you know, I, I was working before it was legal for me to work. Um, and so I was, I was working all the time. And in most of my jobs, I'd figure it out pretty quickly. I'd perform pretty well. I'd get recognition. I'd move up. And so and I thought, waiting tables, how, how hard can this be? And so uh, I start off that job and, and go through training and everything's going really well in training. I memorize the menu. I learn all the ingredients. I learn about our wine list. You know, I, it's great. And then uh, in training, you have this moment where um, if you've been a waiter before, server before, if you've been trained well, there's this moment where you have to go out on the floor and you just kind of shadow another server. And I did that. And man, I'm great. I'm, I'm charming. I'm helpful. I'm going to be awesome at this, Right. And then, uh, and then you reverse roles and you take the lead and someone follows you around, they shadow you. And I, that was great. And so finally the night comes where I'm on my own and I'm ready to do this. And I go to one of my first tables of that night and it's a four top, four people. And I walk up and I introduce myself and I've got this big bottle of Olive Garden wine. And, you know, I, I do this wine presentation and, and, and they all say, yes, we want wine. All four of them want wine. And I'm like, of course, because I'm awesome at this. At the end of the night, they're going to give me an award saying this is the best first night a server has ever had because that's how it's going to be. And so, you know, I go to the bar, I get the wine, and I come back with the wine on the, on the drink tray. It's those stupid drink trays. <laughs> because then I go and I, I take a glass of wine off the tray and I set it down and something happens. I don't know if the balance got shifted because they're tricky. And pretty soon, all four glasses of wine are spilling out of my hands all over the table. Not just all over the table, but particularly over one woman at the table who is wearing more cashmere than I've ever seen a human being wear before. Now, I, I don't know why you would wear cashmere to Olive Garden. It's, it's not a cashmere place. And, and yet she's wearing all this cashmere, this giant cashmere sweater that just happens to be a lovely cream color. And did I mention the wine was red wine? And it's all over her and I am, you know, just start sweating bullets immediately and I'm mopping up the table and my manager comes over and he apologizes and she's in an uproar and the only reason I didn't get fired is because Jocelyn was a really good server and they liked her a lot. Um, and so I, you know, I, I didn't quit that night. I kept it up and uh, worked as a server for the next year plus. And even when we were married, we used, to, we used to share a section together. And the thing that galled me is every night Jocelyn would come home with more money um, you know, I would come home stressed out and I'd have nightmares in my sleep. She was fine. She was way better at this than I was. And so the moral of the story is just be glad I'm up here doing this today and that I'm not the guy serving you lunch later because um, it would be a disaster. You, you don't want me there. See, I, it's not that I've not failed in life. 
that I'm too perfect to have failed. But the reason I say I fail at being a failure is because most of my life, it's not that I'm too perfect to fail, it's that I've been too fearful to allow myself to fail. Does anyone know what that's like? I mean, that's been my story. I, I've just been someone who has been consumed by the idea of, of failure. And, and the thing that I most regret about my life is not any mistake that I've made. It's, it's that living so afraid of failure, I know that I've missed out on truly living. I think back to my wedding day where all of the guys in my family got together to go golfing and all the groomsmen. And, uh, and I wasn't a big fan of this idea because I don't golf um, but I was going to go along with it. And on the day of my wedding day, when all my, you know, the guys I love most in my life, who love me the most, are out golfing, I backed out at the last minute. Didn't go. Because I didn't want to look stupid on my wedding day. I didn't want to fail. Now, some of you know that I love to sing. And, and uh, for me, and I, I, it's something I love to do, but, but all throughout high school and college, I would not audition for a part in a musical and in, you know, in a choir or something else, I would not audition for a part unless I knew I was a shoe and unless the director came up to me and said, hey, Dion, we really want you to try out for this part. That would be the only time I'd audition because the risk of failure was just too high. I could go on and wear you out with stories of how I missed out on truly living because I was afraid of failing. And see, here's what I want to say about this. Maybe you're like me, maybe you're not. But if life is a big race and it's all about who finishes first, then failure is a big problem. Failure is the enemy. But if life is not just about a big race, and it's not only about who finishes first, but if, but if life is not just a race, but it's also about the ride, if life's about the ride, not just the race, then failure can become a rich part of our human experience. Failure can be used by God to do incredible things in our lives. Failure can be used to make us more fully human. And today, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at failure in a different way. And we're going to look through the lens of an encounter that Jesus had with, uh, with some of his disciples at a pretty critical moment. So we're going to go to Luke chapter 22. If, if that's helpful for you, you can look along in your Bible. The words will be up here in a minute. But I just want to give you some context about what's happening as we dive into this story. So uh, this is the night, Luke 22. This is the night of the Passover. This is the night where Jesus celebrates the Last Supper. Some of you have heard of that. Which means it's also the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed and arrested. He's going to be tried and beaten and sentenced and eventually crucified. This is a big night for Jesus. And he knows it. He sees it all coming and he begins talking to his disciples about everything that's going to happen. And their minds are just blown. Because although Jesus has been talking this way for a while, this is not the kind of stuff that winning leaders experience. As Jesus talks more and more about what's about to happen to them, he sounds like a total failure, a loser of a leader, not, not as a winner. And so they're kind of wrestling with that. And because of that, they get, in this, they get in this argument, this dispute about what greatness is. And so you can imagine Jesus is talking about all this heavy stuff that he's about to experience. And he's trying to rally them around himself. And they start fighting. Take a look. It says, The dispute also rose among the disciples as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. It's like, guys, this is not the time for this. Jesus never had to raise kids, but he had these man children around him all the time that must have just worn him out. So Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And, and the ones who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest or the least. And the one who rules 
should be like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? So just ask, ask you, you know, you're not in church right now. Just think in terms of normal worldly thinking, how you think most of the days of the week. You see a guy at a table, a gal at a table. They've got a ton of servants around them, falling over themselves to serve. What's your assumption about who is greater? The person sitting at the table, surrounded by all of these willing servants, or the person serving the wine, hopefully not dumping it, dumping it all over the table. Like, who's, who's the greater one? Well, Jesus answers, well, of course, is it not the one who's at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Jesus is acknowledging that, that his role here is very different. That he's playing a very different part than what they would expect. He goes on and he says, You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me, so that someday you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So as they're fighting about greatness and trying to understand why their, 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 their master is going to go through all of this stuff that looks like failure, Jesus begins to recalibrate their idea about what a truly meaningful life is. It's not being the center of attention with servants all around you, but Jesus says there's something powerful about being the servant, about being the willing servant of others. And when you do that, Someday in the Father's kingdom, you will be uh, truly great. So Jesus begins talking about this, you know, turning this whole idea of, of the human race on its head. And then he takes it a step further. He addresses Simon. He says, Simon, Simon. Now, Simon, also called Peter, Simon, Peter, I'll, I'll call them both probably throughout the rest of this message. So don't be confused. Same guy, Simon or Peter. Simon is, is currently one of the three closest followers of Jesus. So he's got these, these group of 12, but, but Simon's closer. He's part of this elite group. He looks at Simon and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you disciples as wheat. So you get this metaphor here, this image of, of Satan, you know, like the evil one, the accuser, standing there with a, with a big colander or sieve, and, and, uh, and, and he's trying to shake people out. He's raking them over the coals, hoping to break them down enough that they fall. See, only the good wheat would remain and everything else would fall out. And so he says, you know, it's going to get rough for you. You're going you're to be shaken out. It's going to get real pretty quick. And uh, the devil's hope is that you're going to fall between the cracks. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So Simon hears all this about, you know, he might fail. And Jesus says, I'm praying for you that you might not fail. Simon replies, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. In other words, I'm not going to fail you. You know, they can shake me out how they want, but I'm going to be here. I've got your back 100%. But Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, same guy again, Simon Peter, same guy. I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. See, I don't know about you, but I would rather have my eyeballs gouged out with a rusty spoon than to be in the position that Simon Peter is in in this moment. T to have your failure called out in advance in front of everybody, to me, that is like the worst thing imaginable. And see, here's Simon Peter, and he's, he's trying to be faithful. He's trying to be bold. He's trying to be courageous. And Jesus says, no, this is not how it's going to happen. You're saying right now that you'd follow me to prison, that, that you would go to death with me. The truth is, you're not even going to acknowledge me. Three times you'll deny me. So what's this about? Is Jesus just being mean? No, what he's doing is he's trying to prepare Simon Peter for something. 
He's trying to prepare Simon Peter for the role that he'll have after that. I don't know if you saw those words, but he said, he said, I've prayed for you that you may not fail, but when you do, I want you to turn back and strengthen your brothers. In other words, Jesus, right as he's announcing this, this failure of Simon Peter, he's calling him to be the leader of this movement after he goes away, which just is mind-boggling for me. I mean, ironically, if you had to pick a disciple who failed more than any of the others, Simon Peter would be right at the top of the list. I mean, Judas would be close because he's the guy who betrayed Jesus. But Simon Peter, he failed more often, more visibly, in bigger ways than any of the other followers. He was the guy who tried to walk on water and he sank. He was the guy who denied Jesus. He's the guy who blurted out things that were inappropriate all the time. Simon Peter was the guy who was always getting it wrong. And so if you had to pick one of the 12 to be the leader of the movement, after you were gone, pick someone to say, hey, you're going to fail, but I want you, to, I want you to, to take it upon yourself to strengthen your brothers. I want you to become the leader of this thing after I'm gone. Man, you would not pick Simon Peter. And yet Jesus here is, is telling him that he's his choice. Why? Why would Jesus pick a guy like Simon Peter? Was it in spite of his failure? <laughs> you know, is this, is this Jesus teaching a lesson that even if you fail, God can use you in spite of your failure? Is that what's going on here? Is, did Jesus choose Peter because of his, or in spite of his failure? Or is it because of his failure? You hear that? In spite of his failure or because of his failure? See, the Bible doesn't say, but I have a hunch that it was the latter See, I believe that failure, even though I hate it, and I don't fail well, and I avoid it at all costs, I believe that failure is an important part of being truly human. Not only that, I believe that it is, it is only through failure that God can develop us and give us certain gifts in life that make life richer and make us more fit for his service. And today I want to talk about some of those with you. First, uh, failure is a tremendous teacher. See, if you do it right, failure can be a tremendous teacher. Nelson Mandela, he was once uh, quoted as, as saying this, I never lose. <laughs> Sounds like, never mind, I won't say it. Uh, I was going to say Donald Trump, but I won't say that. I never lose. He says, I either win or learn. I love that, right? I never lose. I either win or when I don't win, I learn. See, that's a guy who understands that failure can be a tremendous teacher, this week at Message Study, one of the guys who joins us is, uh, is Heath Lumen, who's up here playing the bass. Um, he's also one of our teachers in our middle school here at St. John, an awesome guy. He's got a theology degree, and so he comes and helps me out on Tuesday mornings to work through texts. And uh, he told me about this book, the book called The Gift of Failure, written by a middle school teacher and parent. And, uh, and I, I paged through this book a little bit this week, and man, I found this, and I think this is so profound. Here's what she says. She says, out of love and desire to protect our children's self-esteem— I'm a parent, I've got three kids. I feel this tension, right? You want to protect your children's self-esteem. She says, here's what happens. We have bulldozed every uncomfortable bump and obstacle out of their way. Clearing the manicured path we hoped would lead to success and happiness. Unfortunately, because we've done that, in so doing, we have deprived our children of the most important lessons of childhood. Get this, the setbacks, mistakes, miscalculations, and failures we have shoved out of our children's way are the very experiences that teach them how to be resourceful, persistent, innovative, and resilient citizens of the world. See, she argues that we're doing that to our kids, and I probably agree. 
But the truth is we do that for ourselves all of the time. When we either refuse to take a risk so that we fail or we refuse to own and acknowledge our failures. See, again, I I think one of the reasons that Jesus chose Simon Peter to be the guy who would go on and strengthen his brothers, to be the leader of his movement after Jesus um, was, was risen and ascended is because through all of these failures, Peter was learning, he was learning, he was learning, he was learning, and that would make him more fit for God's service. Secondly, failure connects us to each other. (laughs) Uh, Some of you are really successful people, and uh, I admire success. I'm inspired by success. But frankly, I don't always have an easy time connecting with success. Again, as I watch the Olympics this week, you'll hear stories of people who've just, you know, worked so hard and they've risen to some great thing, and I'm inspired by that. I don't always connect with that. But I'll tell you what, if you you share with me your failures, I'm with you. I can connect with all of those. See, failure has the power to connect us to each other. And again, I think that's why Peter was such a great candidate for leadership. Peter understood what it was to fail, and that would ultimately make him more humble, more gracious, more compassionate, and it would make him more relatable. See, I'm discovering this too. Um, I went to seminary, and in seminary, they basically tell you as a pastor that you have to act like you're perfect. They do. They would never acknowledge it in that way, but that's what they tell you. They tell you to put on a robe and to act like Jesus and to make sure you don't share too many personal vulnerable stories because people might lose respect for you and, uh, and you know, just to authoritatively speak God's word. And, um, and, and so, you know, you come out of seminary and that's what you do, but here's what I'm discovering. That if I act like I don't understand your struggle, not only am I a hypocrite, but, but you don't relate to me. We don't feel connected. What I'm discovering is as I share with you my struggles on this journey that we're all on together, God does something. He he knits our hearts together and he enables us to learn from each other. See, in seminary, they would say, man, people will lose respect for you if you share failure. For most of the part, for most part, I think honest people, when when, when you hear me talk about my own failures, my own struggles, I, I think that gives us more respect, more understanding for each other. See, success it often breeds elitism, it it puts distance between us as people. But failure reminds us that we are on a level playing field. No matter how successful we've been, we've all, we're all made up of the same stuff and we all have the same struggles. It, it puts us in the same place so that we realize we're on a journey together and we can learn from each other. And it's powerful. It's powerful when we realize that we're not too different. When we realize that, that we, are, we are all part of this human race, this, this people who are connected on this journey that's difficult for all of us, but we're here to help each other. See, failure, if you let it, it can do that to you. It can get rid of that elitist thinking, that fear of letting anyone know that you, you have a vulnerable moment, and it really can humble you, and, and in so doing, it can make you more connected to others. Thirdly, failure makes us braver. You know, I think Simon Peter, um, he, he's, he's a testimony to this. The guy failed over and over again. And here's what happens after you fail once in a big way. You realize that you didn't disintegrate. You didn't stop existing. You realize that, hey, you're still standing. And that emboldens you. That emboldens you to uh, go out and and to risk more. I've heard of CEOs and leaders who won't hire someone on their 
organizational staff, especially the higher levels, who hasn't experienced a major failure? You know, that's an interview question. Tell me about a horrible failure you have. And if they don't have an answer, the interview's over. Because if you haven't experienced failure, not only are you not able to do these other things, but you're probably going to be timid. See, again, I love that about Peter. And I think that's part of the reason Jesus chose Simon Peter to be the leader of the church. Because Peter was a guy who risked big and failed big. And he realized that there's something worse in life than trying and failing. And that is not to try at all. See, I think we need more of this kind of thinking in the church as Christians. That the the greatest fault wouldn't be that we go out serving God and and we fall on our faces. The greatest fault is that out of fear, out of timidity, we stand back and we do nothing to advance God's agenda in the world. But once you step out and, and you fail and you realize that there is a life after failure, I think that gives you more courage. Fourth, failure opens doors of opportunity. You know, you could think about Christopher Columbus and you could say he was a miserable failure. And I think personally, in a lot of ways, he probably was. But you could say he was, he was looking for a trade route to India, a shortcut, and he failed. He didn't find it. Except for the fact that he discovered a whole new land. And uh, Thomas Edison, heard of him. Um, do you know that for years he worked to develop a dictation device? And, uh, and he failed at it. He never actually invented a dictation device. Instead, he invented a thing called the phonograph. And for those of you who don't know what a phonograph is, it's a record player. And for those of you who don't know what a record is, it's like a really big CD. <laughs> and if you don't know what a CD is, I can't help you. I don't, I don't know what else to say. Um, you know, failure can open doors of opportunity. Sometimes serendipitously, you'll discover a, a new invention. You'll discover a new, a new path to service to others that you'd never find if you hadn't failed first. Or I think of uh, Bill W., Bill Wilson, his name is. Um, he was the guy who, uh, who founded AA. And the only reason he founded an organization that has helped millions and millions of people is because he himself struggled to manage his life and he turned to alcohol in an unhealthy way. See, out of failure and learning through that failure, an opportunity was open to him. Uh, and then last, I want to spend most of my time here. Failure demonstrates the depths of God's unconditional love. See, I believe this is so important. I I don't believe that you can sing Amazing Grace, that great hymn of the church. I don't believe you can sing that and know what that, that song is about until you have wallowed in the stink of your own failure. See, I, I think for Peter, this was, this was probably above all on the list as to why Jesus chose him. Because Peter needed to understand the depths of God's unconditional love, his amazing grace. And so um, just as Jesus predicted, as Jesus is being tried and carried off to his execution, someone in the crowd asks Peter, hey, weren't you with Jesus? And Peter goes, no, 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 I don't know the guy. And he does this three times. In the moment where Jesus needs a friend, more than any other moment in his life, Peter denies that he even knows him. And Jesus is carried off and he's crucified and Peter is absolutely heartbroken by his failure. In fact, he believes that what has happened, what what he has allowed to happen, his failure of loyalty to Jesus, he believes that that is grounds for his disqualification to to do anything significant for Jesus again. And uh, so a few days after the crucifixion, the next time we see Peter, do you know where he is? He's out fishing. 
because that's how he used to make a living. And it's kind of like Peter's going, you know, <laughs> I've messed up, I'm done, I'm out. I, I can't be useful for God's purposes anymore. Let me see if I can go back to my old way of life. I can make a living fishing. And while he's out there fishing, Jesus appears on the shore. The resurrected Jesus appears on the shore and he calls to him and they have this conversation. And Jesus asks Peter three times. Once for each time that Peter denied Jesus, he asks him, Simon Peter, do you love me? And Peter answers yes, and Jesus says, then I want you to feed my sheep. In other words, I, I, want, you, I want you to lead others. And by the third time when Jesus asks this question and Peter has to answer, um, Peter starts getting offended. <laughs> you know, this is a sore spot for him. And he's like, come on, Jesus. You know, I, I know I failed you. I know I messed up. But this is the third time you're asking if I love you and you know I love you. And Jesus says, okay then. Feed my sheep. Get out of the fishing boat. You've not been disqualified. I want you to feed my sheep. And, 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 and for Jesus, this question three times isn't just so that Peter can prove his affection, his love for Jesus. It really is Jesus proving that he still loves Peter. Not only in spite of his failure, but because of his failure. See, you can't know the depths of someone's love while you're riding high on success. Everybody loves a successful person. You know, I think about my parents, people who loved me really well. And the moments that I felt most loved by them where I really could see the depths of their love, they, they weren't the moments where I was getting an award or they were high-fiving me or hugging me after a great report card. The moments where, where I felt most loved by my parents were those moments where, where I, had, I, had, I had done something foolish or careless, or hurtful, and they were hugging me, telling me they loved me anyway. Like the moment where I almost crashed the car into a tree and I broke my window out and I had to come home and tell them that. Or the moment that I had driven away from the gas station with the pump still attached <laughs> and then didn't go back and the police saw and there was a whole thing. Or I think about all of the times that I broke their hearts, either confessing or them discovering some, some bad decision, some hurtful thing that I had done. Um, and I had to confess that to them. And, and they looked at me and they reassured me that they still loved me. See, it's the same in my friendships. It's been the same in my marriage. The day where I felt most loved by Jocelyn wasn't the day that we stood in you know, nice clothes and made vows to each other. But the days that I felt most loved are the days where I have done something that makes me completely unlovable. And she loves me anyway. See, I think for us in our relationship with God, it is just too easy to believe that God loves us because we're lovable, because we're running the race well, because we're keeping our head above water, because we're doing better than the next guy. But I'll tell you this, you can't truly be transformed by the love of God until, until you have a colossal failure and you hear the voice of God calling after you, just like he called to Peter later on, calling you, telling you that he still loves you and that his opinion of you hasn't changed, that his love is still real, his mercy is still real. See, there's nothing more powerful than being loved by God even after a failure. Too many of us believe in this room that our failures have disqualified us from God's love. But nothing could be further from the truth. 
See, your failures are actually what make you a candidate. They're what qualifies you to live under grace. Because grace is exactly that. It is undeserved love. And if there's an ounce of you that believes that you are loved by God because you deserve it, then you don't know the love of God yet. It's not until you, you know that you are unlovable and you hear God saying, I love you, you are my son, you are my daughter and I've got plans for you, not just in spite of what you've done, but because of what you've done, I, I can redeem that in your life. That's what's truly life changing. That's what will change you from being a person who believes that your worth, your value comes from how fast you are in this race of life to being a person who knows that your worth, your value comes only from the God who loves you. from what he speaks over you, from the worth that he speaks over your life. See, see, let me just say in closing that I, as much as anyone, love the potential of the human spirit. I love to push the boundaries of what's possible for people. And I do that with myself. I do that with my family. I do that here in our organization. I love the race. But I'm learning to also love the ride. I'm learning that life isn't just made up of of how well we run the race, but but I'm learning that there is this greater ride that we are a part of and that the most powerful moments of our human experience are those moments when we fail and we see a mighty, merciful, gracious God do work in and through us that can only be done when we do fail. See, I'm learning that failure is not to be avoided, that God can use it for great things, but I'm also learning that failure is what makes me and you truly human. And so today, here's what I want to do. I want to, conclu- I want to conclude, I want to close by inviting you to just own your failure, to admit it. See, so often we fail and, and we blame others and we push it off and we make excuses. And uh, you're shortcutting the opportunity for God to use that in your life for some greater good. Today, I want to challenge us to, uh, to confess our failure, to own it before God, to entrust him with our failure and to see what he might be able to do with it. So would you stand with me? We're going to pray together a prayer and uh, maybe these words will connect with you and they'll get to the heart of, of your own fear with failure, your own denial of failure. Maybe they won't, but I hope they at least give you, a, give you a starting point to admit, to own your failure and to entrust it to God. So uh, will you pray these words with me? Father in heaven, we confess that although you have sent us into the world to be bold and courageous witnesses, Our fear of failure stops us in our tracks and leaves us paralyzed. Forgive us, Father. Instead of trusting in your grace to perfect us, we seek perfection on our own, which leaves us both empty and broken. Empower us, O Lord, to be faithful in all we say and do. Grant us the courage to step out in faith and go wherever you send us. With faith-filled hearts and open hands, help us to set aside our fears and walk confidently on the paths you lead us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now again, maybe those words 
gave you a moment to, uh, to own up and to speak and to admit to God your failure. And maybe they didn't. So I just want to give you a second to do that on your own. Just talk to God instead of hiding your failure, instead of being ashamed about it. Offer it up to God and ask him to do something with it. Take a moment and do that right now. Just like with Simon, our Father in heaven, he's seen all of your failures in advance. And instead of distancing himself from you, instead of disqualifying you from use in his work, he's made a way for you to come back to him. He sent his son into the world and that son gave his life to reassure you that you're loved, that you're forgiven that God has the power now to redeem your failures, that he can use you not in spite of your failures, but even because of your failures. Yeah, I want you to know that you're loved, you're forgiven. God's got a future for you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.